Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we bring you an expert panel of internationally renowned researchers and practitioners speaking about the difficult topic of harmful sexual behaviours in children. What are they and how can we prevent and treat this behaviour? Firstly, we hear from Dr. Danielle Harris, who is the Deputy Director of Research at the Griffith Youth Forensic Service and a Senior Lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. We also hear from Dr. Gemma McKibben, a Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Social Work at the University of Melbourne. Simon Hackett is a Professor of Child Abuse and Neglect in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. And Jodie Barton gives us her perspective as the Clinical Manager of the Griffith Youth Forensic Service. Thank you so much for having me today and to just enable the incredible wealth of information that we have sitting here before us. These internationally renowned researchers and to give us some insights into this really difficult topic which Bruce and Denise kindly kicked off the podcast with talking about harmful sexual behaviours. As Denise said, it's a difficult topic but it's one that really needs to be discussed so this is great that we can discuss it so frankly here. Danielle, you've published more than 40 articles and book chapters. You've got quite a unique international experience, but can you also tell us about your role with the Griffith Youth Forensic Service and what you're doing there in this realm? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for for coming and and thank you to the panel and to Daniel Morkham Foundation for including me. Yes, I worked for 15 years in the US and I interviewed more than 100 adult men who had been convicted of sexual offences, mostly against children, and looked at their pathways to both recidivism and desistance. Since I returned to Australia in 2016, I've started working at the Griffith Youth Forensic Service with Jodie Barton, who is the clinical manager there. And as she can explain, that's an organisation that provides individualised treatment to any adolescent in Queensland who has been adjudicated for a sexual offence. And so in our recent research there, Simon's presentation was a really great introduction. I used a lot of that material in my application for funding for Anne Rose and and Westpac because what Jodie and I and our team at Griffith are actually doing at the moment is uh, a follow-up of our clients, at our, our young people at, at GIFTS who have been through that treatment program since 2001 when it began. 
So we're looking at uh, exit reports and looking at the um, exactly those variables that Simon talked about with quality of life and well-being and life success. So um, watch this space for uh, updated research from a local perspective, but that's exactly what we're looking at, outcomes that are not just recidivism and looking at the holistic individual, which is consistent with the GIFS model. So what do you find? Are there any initial insights that you can give there? Yeah, I think one of the big take-homes for me so far has been the importance of having someone in your corner and the importance of age-appropriate, timely intervention. The GIFS model is individual and place-based. It literally meets the children where they are. Our clinicians travel all over the state. We are limited to just working with those individuals who have been adjudicated by a court. What anyone can tell you, especially my students, <laughs> I hope, um, can tell you about the criminal justice funnel, right? That of the people that are engaging in this behavior, only a very, very small proportion of them ever end up in front of the court. So what GIFS is doing is extraordinarily important work with that pointy end, but there is so much more that we can do and so I, I think for me, the big take home from um, Rebecca's presentation earlier, you know, that nine out of 10 people understand that this is an issue, but only two out of 10 people think that they can do something about it. That to me is a massive window of opportunity and a huge knowledge gap that we can all fill. If there's a child in your life, you can do something about it by starting the discussion early and by increasing our education and awareness at an earlier level before it gets to an adjudication to gifts. In our background discussions this morning, you actually mentioned some fascinating research in that area about how you'd plotted uh, behaviours there. Can we discuss that even briefer? But I just thought that actually really illustrated what you're saying. The part of the research that Jodie and I have done is to um, plot the adverse childhood experiences of the young people who have been adjudicated by gifts and who have been treated by them. The adverse childhood experiences, as some of you might know, is um, a checklist of 10 items that lists uh, various kinds of physical, emotional and sexual abuse and neglect and other childhood maltreatment and family uh, household dysfunction. And it's very dated. It was written in 1998, which is quite traumatically 25 years ago or something ridiculous. And so th when they did that study of adults who were help-seeking and had health insurance in the US, those people on average had an ACE score of 1.2. So you go down the list of, have you ever experienced any of these things? Yes, no. And the average score for help-seeking adults with health insurance was 1.2. They decided that because of the meta-analysis that they did of many thousands of people, they indicated that a score of four out of 10 was a strong indicator of significant um, concerns in later life. The average score for our GIFS clientele is 4.7. And so what we did with the ANROSE project was uh, to look at the cases who had very, very high ACE scores of eight, nine, 10, and that was sort of yes, no, ever, never. And we plotted them by year that they occurred and we could go back over their histories and see what they had experienced and when it had happened. And when we talk about early intervention, I think it's great that we talk, you know, 10 to 12, 13 to 15, we've got to do something sooner. The kids that we were, were seeing all of these experiences happening, they were happening before kindergarten. They had experienced five, six, seven, eight different kinds of abuse and maltreatment before they were in primary school. 
And so for me, that just echoes how important it is for early intervention to happen even earlier than we think. It's never too soon. Jodie, uh, as clinical manager at Griffin Youth Forensic Service, can you tell us a bit about your role in this treatment and how you prevent these harmful sexual behaviours? So our service is funded through in-kind support by the university, but also our funding is primarily through youth justice, so Queensland Government. We've been funded now for, this is our 22nd year. Essentially, we're funded to provide pre-sentence forensic assessments for young people appearing before the courts for offences of a sexual nature right across Queensland. And then if the young person's sentenced to a community supervision order or receives a detention sentence, we then can provide treatment as part of that funding. And you found that with this early intervention that we're talking about and how crucial that is. You've got data following up gifts clients. The majority of those don't reoffend. So there has been some studies around looking at our recidivism rates for young people, which shows some really good success. But we also are really mindful about things um, in terms of how Simon was speaking to us about the other outcomes that we need to look at. And so that's what we're wanting to now follow up. And I think you mentioned some interesting aspects again this morning when we were chatting about just some funding limitations in that. That's really some of the frustration, isn't it? And even Medicare not being able to really be able to provide the support sometimes that we need psychologically for these children. Yeah, look, I think that um, in, in terms of the context of the service sector in Queensland, we have some really good things happening. Many of my peers are here today from Brave Hearts, Act for Kids. I'm not sure if Mercy Family Services are here. I'll probably forget somebody, so I won't try and list you all. But we have some really good emerging sector cross-partnerships happening. The challenge that Simon's put to us to think about more is what happens after the work that we've done concludes and how are we looking after young people into the future to improve outcomes. And essentially that's a really cross-government challenge too because we know that poor outcomes individually affect the entire community. I think this dovetails very nicely into the research you've been doing, Gemma. Can you tell us about your very recent research interviewing uh, some vulnerable young people? I wanted to talk about an interview I did with a young person who had sexually harmed a couple of weeks ago. And that is as part of the Worried About Sex and Pornography project for young people. And just a bit of context about that. When we sort of set about advocating for a Stop It Now Australia service, so that's a, a service where people who were worried about their sexual thoughts and behaviours in relation to children can phone a helpline or do a, do a chat with a clinician and be supported to desist from carrying out child sexual abuse. So we are piloting that uh, Stop It Now Australia. Jesuit Social Services is leading that and the University of Melbourne is evaluating that. And I could talk more about that uh, because we've got some really exciting findings, but uh, I'll move to the kids. So. When we were setting up Stop It Now Australia, we thought, you know, we really needed a similar service for children and young people who were worried about their sexual thoughts and behaviours and what they were doing. And Stop It Now wasn't appropriate for them because it's an adult-focused service. It, you know, wasn't the right branding, wasn't the right language, wasn't uh, developmentally uh, sensitive enough. 
So we began the WhatsApp project to work out what a service for children and young people could look like. And, you know, there's been a number of sort of parts of the research, but the Daniel Morecambe Foundation very generously has recently funded us to do interviews with young people who have sexually harmed and to show them various online tools and to give us feedback about what might be helpful to them. And I suppose, so we've just done two interviews so far, we'll be doing 10. And I did just want to talk through, if that's okay, now some of the things that could have been done differently, just in the context of Simon's talk about Andrew, what this young person said to me that could have been done differently or that worked well for them. And one of the things that worked well was, or actually, you know, initially didn't work well, but what this young person told me triggered the harmful sexual behaviour was a lack of attention from his dad and very significant jealousy towards a step-sibling who was actually the victim then of the harmful sexual behaviour. So um, he, the, the young person I interviewed really, you know, needed a much much more attention from his dad and, uh, you know, and a closer relationship. And it just really speaks to the relational, you know, having a safe adult in your life is the biggest protective factor, really. And he said that the message that he would tell other children and young people who were thinking about sexually harming was that, you know, in the long run, it's not worth it. Get yourself out of the triggering environment and talk to safe adults. So... He also said that, you know, and Simon touched on this, the sex education he got was in about year nine, but his thoughts and behaviours had started in year six. So he needed all that information about consent and the law and incest, etc. you know, years probably, you know, when he was about 10, year five. So that was some of the kind of primary prevention things. And then... You know, I asked him, would he have sought help? And he said, yes, I would have sought help from an adult if there had been an adult around who knew about harmful sexual behaviour. So someone like his therapist he wanted around at school. He found that he was having regular sessions with the counsellor at school, but they kept falling through for some reason, even though he was showing up. And he didn't feel like he could talk to that counsellor about his thoughts. So he said that if there was no safe person to talk to, then he would have used the internet to look up what he was thinking and feeling. He said it would have been helpful to have something around processing emotions because it was the jealousy that was the trigger. So th something around that. I asked him about the Kids Helpline and he identified the Kids Helpline as being about domestic and family violence and not about harmful sexual behaviour. Although we do know that kids are ringing the kids' helpline and end up talking about harmful sexual behaviour. So he wanted to know what's consent and you know what are the laws, what am I allowed to do? Like, these kids don't know what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. They just have vague feelings that something's not right, but they don't really know what it is. And he said he needed answers to two questions. And these are the questions he asked his therapist. He said, what is okay? So he needed to know that in, when he was in year five. 
what is okay? And then he, he needed to know, am I okay? So they were the two questions that he brought to therapy. I think also, you know, the porn was a problem, just, you know, goes without saying. The porn was uh, supporting his abuse of, of the sibling. I think what was really interesting was the relationship with the therapist. And this young person told me that the message from the therapist, and he's a terrific clinician, and I've known him for a long time, he says, you know, things happen that can also be put in the past, but not forgotten. So there was a sense that, yes, this happened, this behaviour happened, you know, I did something wrong, I can put it in the past, move on to the future, uh, but I don't need to forget about it. It doesn't have to inhabit my everyday world or life. One of the greatest protective factors was that he continued to see his dad. His dad didn't reject him, and I think that he wasn't put in out-of-home care. So, I mean, they're two massive protective factors on his uh, journey to recovery. And I'll finish, but the, I mean, what I always say, and I think this is a good thing to keep in mind, is that all children have the right not to be sexually abused, right, everyone, but all children have the right not to become sexually harmful. And if they're becoming sexually harmful, it's because we're not doing our job right as adults. I think this points to, again, a couple of points that you had, Simon, in, in your amazing presentation too, but just the need to respond to that incredibly rich research, but uh, with that mix of traditional and relational approaches, so not just putting people in a box and saying this is your diagnosis, but walking with them through life and putting up that scaffolding and support. I think so. And one of the things I really liked this morning from the video that Bruce and Denise showed was this notion of this is everybody's responsibility. I said this last week at a different presentation that I think in relation to harmful sexual behaviour, sometimes we've been looking down the wrong end of the telescope. We've been zooming in on individual children and seeing it as being a problem of individual children. And of course, when it happens to you and your family, it's a very personal experience that really needs addressing in that context. But actually, if you look at it through the other end of the telescope, then what do we as a society and as a community and communities need to do in order to change the conditions in which children are influenced? I think this is a different kind of challenge for us, which hits at the heart of these kind of prevention measures about educative work with children and young people. Because kind of those individual treatment approaches, if you like, for young people like Andrew might be necessary, but certainly in my experience, there's kind of like such a lot of lower end problematic sexual behavior that occurs, for example, in peer groups in schools. What we don't want to do is suggest that all of those children who are involved in those kinds of lower level behaviors need that kind of an approach, but they need something. We need to be changing the conditions in which they're experiencing the world in order to make it less likely that these kinds of problems um, exist. So, you know, things like peer attitudes about sex and sexuality, about misogyny and about sexist attitudes, about teaching children about safety online, about the damage that pornography does to children's sexual development. All of those things, I think, are really crucial prevention measures that we need to get right across the board and then focus in on those children who need that more specialised support. It's not doing one or the other, it's doing both, I think.
So that's something certainly that you look at is how to identify these children early, but yes, not to overly demonize them or to, yeah, what's the difference between someone who's eight years old and starting this and someone who really needs some high-end intervention? At GIFTS, we do frequently talk about how we manage the pointy end of the distribution. One of the questions that has come up for me in uh, working with the clinicians there is it can't all be abuse. Maybe there are people that come to this place with low ACE scores. So we've actually looked at that as well. We've looked at 20 young people who came to GIFTS with an ACE score of zero or one. It was clear in their file that there was no known history of physical, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect or other kinds of maltreatment or household dysfunction. But what we did see was that 15 out of 20 of them had reported some kind of sexual education at some point. For 12 of those, when asked what that looked like, pornography was their sexual education. And 100% of those kids, so all of those 12, had been exposed to pornography and were frequently viewing it before the age of 12. If you following the numbers, there was only three who had experienced any kind of sexual education where their parents had been involved, where they talked about how their parents had taught them anything. I think that is another massive window of opportunity and a massive knowledge gap. It points to, as you said, the need to update those definitions to include that aspect of pornography really now, doesn't it? That needs to be updated pretty urgently, I would have thought. Yes, that's something that I've seen in the decades of research that I've done interviewing men who were were offending in the 60s and 70s and then get released into the community in 2006 and talk about experiencing differences in, for example, access to pornography. But I I think we're, we're seeing it really profoundly in very early young age children. It seems to be the only explanation for some of the cases that we see at GIFTS who are getting to that pointy end. There's no other explanation for their offending that I can see other than a lot of bullying and and social isolation, which leads them to retreat to behind the computer. And that leads to uh, use of pornography and exposure to pornography. So it's identifying there's not just one risk factor in that group, but It speaks to social skills difficulties and I guess hand in hand with that is that they're retreating and and are online and getting their education that way. So that's how we can better identify those children early? Yeah, so I guess we talk about touch points in when we see a file for a young person that comes to us, often they're much later in adolescence and so the touch points that we look at are things like their interaction with um, other systems, so education, and often it's early dropout from education, family dysfunction, child safety intervention, earlier antisocial conduct. And so it's really speaking to a cross-government approach to intervention rather than looking at uh, things in isolation. Well, it sounds like we need to provide that continuous support, particularly for vulnerable children who aren't in a stable home environment. I think having someone in your corner is one of the things that has come out of the uh, interviews that that I've done and of the research that I've done with the GIFTS young people. Um, And I want to be really clear that having a person in your corner doesn't necessarily have to be a caregiver or a parent. We, of course, know that sometimes parents and caregivers can be the source of abuse or neglect. So Uh, The idea of, you know, a whole hand of safety helpers and the idea of having other people that you can talk to that it might not be a parent in the conversations that we've had with uh, culturally and linguistically diverse people and 
uh, also our First Nations people, that the, the idea of an extended family is so much richer. It doesn't have to be a parent or caregiver. If you are not a parent or a caregiver, it's still your responsibility. I said something you found too, Jim. I mean, you pointed the t- before that it was so fantastic that person you interviewed stayed in a relationship with his father, but are there other ways to get that support that you've seen as well? Yeah, that speaks to Simon's longitudinal work. And I remember this from my PhD research, which was about talking to young people who had sexually harmed and asking them what could have been different in their lives. But they talked about having a clear narrative about what had happened, both what they had done to someone else, but what had been done to them. So through the therapeutic process, having a very clear narrative that explained what had happened was really important to them, as well as, you know, having their own experiences of trauma redressed. Okay, so these kids often had been abused themselves, not just sexually, but emotionally, physically, just living in impoverished sort of family environments, not all of them, but many of them. And nobody ever called out their perpetrators or held their perpetrators to account. So there was something about being able to move forward when someone stood up for them, someone was in their corner, and then they could start to imagine a future. I found in that, in the PhD research, It was often when they found an age-appropriate partner that they could sort of heal and recover and start to imagine, oh, you know, I actually do want to get a house and I do want to get married and I'd really like to have children, you know, and they start to imagine a future that for a time when the behaviour was happening or when they were immediately in trouble for the behaviour, they couldn't imagine any future. So there's something about imagining and being able to look forward. Yeah. And preventing, as Simon mentioned, uh, people falling off a cliff after 18 into that abyss of not really having that support to go forward in their life. Is there any final thoughts that you would have, Simon, on uh, this topic? It's really important to remember that when... As I, as I said earlier, that we're not talking about one thing. And we've talked quite a lot about the needs of children and young people at the pointy end. And of course, um, if we do think that children's sexual behaviour exists on a spectrum of concern, then we need to be really clear that our responses are also on a spectrum. We shouldn't over-treat individual children for things that actually need a much lower level response nor should we undertreat those whose needs are really extensive. I think it's a really difficult system balancing act, and I think we need a range of responses across that continuum or spectrum that keep things in proportion and offer a kind of balanced response to, to children and young people. Go the extra mile when we need to, but not pathologise children unnecessarily for things that in some cases are developmentally appropriate behaviours that um, maybe expressed in an inappropriate context etc so I think it's really really important that we're clear about what we're dealing with and we respond in, in that kind of way. Please thank our wonderful um, input from our expert panel thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, have we got anyone with questions who'd like to follow up from that? Hi 
Melissa Larson from IDJ and Comply Space. Gemma, I think this one's for you, but happy for anyone to answer. In your research, are young people commenting on the restriction of access to their devices as being, you know, something that they wish had been put on them? No. (laughs) They will not be separated from those devices under any circumstances. I find it interesting we talk about a stable home, but then we're in this sort of movement or this way of thinking about young people giving them freedom and reduced consequences and how that all sort of falls into place and wondering, and across the whole panel, Mm. is there any research or any thoughts you have on, on that particular notion? I'm just thinking about the Power to Kids program, which is a prevention program started in out-of-home care and we're moving it to schools and it addresses uh, harmful sexual behaviour, child sexual exploitation and um, dating violence. And really, I think that, you know, the horse is bolted with technology, right? That, you know, we're totally out of control. Parents can't control it. Teachers can't control it. We need, you know, pornography. (laughs) come on, let's do something, let's, yeah, regulate that, let's stop kids accessing Pornhub all day and all night. Um, So, but they won't be separated from their devices and, you know, children have now become merged with their devices. So there's not really this distinction between online and offline anymore. And the problem is if you take their device away, someone if they're vulnerable, it's going to give them a device so that they can be groomed and sexually exploited. So that's what we see. So restriction, we just find, doesn't work and it actually increases the danger that a perpetrator can step in and fill that technology void for a child. And I think we need to be really careful then that we don't blame children for things that actually are the responsibility of us as adults in terms of how we provide safe um, communities for for children. We wouldn't do that in other contexts. Um, So why do we do it in relation to their online worlds? So there are things that we have a responsibility to do to make things more safe for them. And we're not gonna, I agree, we're not gonna manage the problem out by trying to stop children from using those kind of technologies. There's also lots of benefits for those kind of worlds for for children and young people in terms of access to information and communities. If you think about Andrew, for instance, you know, he, he might have actually got a huge amount of very positive things had he been able to find a community there that could have supported him in terms of his sexuality, etc. It's a bit, bit about what our responsibilities are and the help that we give children to navigate those worlds rather than necessarily restrict to them. The message is probably about the least restrictive practice and more focusing on the education and management within the home, within school, yeah, rather than trying to restrict because our online world, it's a reality. My question goes to uh, whether anyone on the panel has done any research about whether young people are aware of mandatory reporting and whether they are whether they might think that therefore if they tell somebody there's going to be a report, there's going to be interventions that they can no longer control. Yeah, that speaks to disclosure. And we learnt from the Royal Commission that the average time it takes to disclose Child sexual abuse is 20-odd years. So the the rule is that children don't tend to disclose. And I think best practice, you know, what they'll do is they'll make partial disclosures. So they'll say, I'm being bullied. So they'll go to the school counsellor 
and they'll say, so-and-so is bullying me. And they're testing how they're going to react and whether there's going to be a supportive reaction or not. And if there isn't, they just don't continue to say anything. And often when children do make a disclosure, they will ask you not to tell anyone. And, you know, as professionals, of course, we have to tell someone. So it's really taking them through that process of, look, now that you've told me, I am going to need to talk to some other people about this, but let's work out how we do that together. So really keeping child-centred practice going through the entire disclosure uh, process. Yeah, I was just asking about that because I've, I've been a child protection practitioner for 30-odd years and I actually worked on the Royal Commission with Bob. My children always knew what I did and I thought, therefore, they would come to me if something happened, but they didn't. Right. And I think it was because they knew the law, they, because I'd been talking to them about it, they knew what could happen if they told. So they didn't. And I'm just wondering if there, if there is any plan for any sorts of research about that with kids, because kids are very, you know, they're very switched on. They know what can happen. Marie Crabb from It's Time We Talked. I wanted to add something to the question earlier about pornography and then ask a question if that's all right. In terms of young people wanting restrictions as opposed to wanting their devices taken away, a study from New Zealand found that 71% of 14 to 17 year olds did want some sort of restriction. They thought that children and young people under 18 shouldn't be exposed to porn. Only 13% said that they didn't want some sort of restriction. But it's a bit rough for that to sit with young people. So I think the move towards age verification or some kind of regulatory response that does that thing that the panellists are talking about, about it not being children and young people's responsibility. But I also think we do need more complex approaches to the restrictions to technology. Like, I don't think the sort of either or, either there is or there isn't, but not having access to them in your bedroom at night time all through the, all through the night is good for your sleep, as well as for reducing the risk of online sexual exploitation, as well as reducing the chances that you're watching three or four hours of porn that's likely to have incest themes and sexual violence of a range of forms. So age appropriate, not Either or, you either have a device or you don't, but we manage the use of devices. I think that's the approach that I would argue for. A couple of you have made references to the role that porn plays. And I wonder if you can just say a little bit more in what that looks like. I think, um, Gemma, you might have said, or Simon might have said that porn was reinforcing someone's behaviour. You might have said that about Andrew and Gemma. You made a, you've made similar comments about from your PhD. What does that look like? How is porn reinforcing the sorts of messages that underpin harmful sexual behaviour? And what does it look like to address it as part of a therapeutic intervention? Thanks, Marie. I, I think you're dead right in relation to when are we going to really take action in relation to this? You know, I've been struck the last few weeks being an outsider coming here about what the Australian governments are doing in relation to vaping and young people. You know, we have some evidence, developing evidence now, that vaping is dangerous for young people and you're taking a really brave stand on that in terms of how you're moving forward and you know much more in advance to the UK about discussions about that. When are we going to match that with the dangers of porn? But I think the analogy is a good one. You know, why is it we're able to take action when about certain harms to children and we're a bit uncomfortable or we're slow in relation to other things? And in terms of, I think, the relationship between harmful sexual behaviour and exposure to pornography. The Children's Commissioner in England has just released a report where she talked to a whole load of young people about their use of pornography and its impact. And 
I think young people have told her they're more likely to engage in themes that they've been exposed to in terms of uh, pornography. So she found a close relationship, for example, between young people who had viewed violent pornography and them replicating that and normalising that in their own sexual behaviour. I think we've probably got some clues now. That is really a, a strong relationship. Bearing in mind that our service is working with young people who have committed offences in the more abusive and violent end of the spectrum that Simon talks about, it's really then unpacking what are the scripts that they're using from what they've seen um, and looking at re-education and reshaping with them in understanding the messages that they've received and what's reality. I'm curious, we've mentioned that preschool, primary school is the time to start talking about intervention, but you also made the comment which I'm passionate about, and that is that children aren't responsible for keeping themselves safe, and I think Simon said that, and I'm sure you all agree with that. So what is being done to give adults a similar sort of strategy and information and education that we're trying to give children, because it can't work if the adults aren't also given good information to back up what you're teaching the younger children because I, I still believe that that very early age group they need to know that the adults are in charge you know they're not in charge of their own safety adults are how are we going to give adults that information so that we can be a more caring and effective community child sexual abuse of whatever kind it's a public health problem and it needs a public health solution and that means thoughtful evidence-based prevention strategies on a primary level, a secondary level, and a tertiary level. And that, in fact, talking to parents is just a very small part of the puzzle, in a way. Protective behaviours for children is a small part of the puzzle. And we need to think really creatively about the context that is enabling child sexual abuse. And that, you know, Toby Dag spoke about this this morning in terms of holding platforms to account. So sexual abuse of our children is happening on Snapchat and Facebook and Insta every, every second that we've been sitting here today. So why aren't those platforms, you know, it just beggars belief. So, so I guess that's, you know, my answer is that yes, we need to do everything to upskill parents and carers and the community, but we also have to think really creatively. Um, if we targeted pornography as a risk factor, I reckon we'd have harmful sexual behaviour, you know, within a decade. We've already seen some changes. I would say that the content that my undergraduate students talk about watching on Netflix, there's a show called Sex Education that some of them mentioned to me and I went and watched it and I was like, my experience of television and film in my university degree was getting home in time for the midday movie if you were lucky because there were four channels. I think that the more that we're exposed to all of this different stuff, the more that we're going to have to talk to our kids about it. So I've, I've seen a huge change just in the content that's available and the content that's available in whatever ways, you know, for, for good or bad, it's at least starting that conversation. We've gone beyond the point where we can see this as a problem of individual children. We need to give parents and communities and 
broadly um, society the tools that they need in order to have the kind of conversations that they need to have with their children about these kind of issues. It's not just about picking individual deviant children and, and responding to them. It's what we need to give all parents in order to have those conversations about sex, sexual development, to su help support their children's safe sexual development and healthy sexual development in the context of all of these pressures on them. Uh, and parents often find that really difficult to do. So I think then, then, you know, we need strategies to be able to give them those tools. One of the things I find interesting in my job is the culture around children, that we sit in this room and I think a lot of us are very comfortable having conversations where we centre children and centre the best interests of the child. But actually in the larger community, when that butts up against the rights of adults or it butts up against the way people, I think, still think children should be seen and not heard, so I kind of think for me, yes, we can teach children as many protective behaviours as we like. Here's your helping hand. It centres the issue on them. Whereas I think there's a, a broader cultural question about how children are seen and valued and the way that we centre them as part of the conversation, which I think is a bigger and harder thing to do. Well, on that philosophical note, can we thank everyone for your contributions today and Professor Simon Hackett, Professor in the Department of Sociology at Durham University, Dr Danielle Harris, Deputy Director of Griffith Youth Forensic Service, Dr Gemma McKibben, Research Fellow in the Department of Social Work at the University of Melbourne, and Jody Barton, Clinical Manager at GIFTS. Thank you so much for today. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.